Okay, so let me just get started. So if you have your, your Bibles, you might want to take them out now. Um, if you're taking notes on your phone or if you've got your notepads, feel free to take those out as well. So we're in January. Um, it's the start of the year. And at the start of the year, as usual, we start thinking about New Year resolutions. Uh, we start thinking about new beginnings. We start thinking about, you know, New Year, New Me, and all the things that we want to do and we want to declare this year. And we're halfway through the month, and this is a time where standards slowly start slipping. We start to kind of digress back to who we were before, but we still want to maintain those targets. And it's all well and great having those targets. It's all well and great having those, declaration, uh, having those declarations. But in all of this, we need to ensure that we put the first things first that we prioritize the eternal over the temporal, that we are clear on what our priorities are and what is important. So the title of my message today, for those taking notes, is Jesus First. So just turn to your neighbor and just encourage them to put Jesus first. Say it one more time, a bit more encouragement, put Jesus first. Add a bit more conviction in it. Put Jesus first. So my base scripture is from the book of Matthew. So if we can turn to Matthew 16, I'm reading the English Standard Version, so the ESV translation, and I'm reading from verse 13. So Matthew 16 from verse 13, and it reads, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. Amen. 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 So we're just going to go into this, into this text which is going to be the basis of everything I'm going to be sharing with you today. So what's interesting about the beginning of this conversation is Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi, which we'll get into a bit later, into that region, and he's with his disciples. And just before that, he had been challenging the Pharisees and the Sadducees for their teaching and warning the disciples about their teachings and not to be lured in or to be tricked. So we now get into this kind of introduction per se, where he's asking them of who he is. And he asks them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And I always found it interesting because why didn't he just say, who do people say I am? Why did he specifically say the Son of Man? You know, I recall if anyone's read John 8 that the last time he used the term I am, he didn't quite get the positive results from the people for anyone who's read that. That's a little Bible joke for any of you guys who read John 8. So he used the term Son of Man a man that has uh, a term that has two distinct meanings. The son of man essentially means the son of Adam, which means a normal human being. And we see references to this in scripture. And we see even God calling the prophet Ezekiel son of man, a normal guy. But this is also the title for the Messiah. And we see this in the Old Testament prophecies, you know, in the, in the book of Psalm, there's a prophecy where it talks about, you know, who is man that you care for him? And the son of man, that God has crowned him with glory and with honor and given him dominion over all the, the works of his hands, over the world. We remember from Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 7, where he talks about seeing a son of man descending on a cloud of heaven. 
and upon him is given all the dominion and the glory and the power of the eternal kingdom. So the reference the son of man was a very important reference to the Jews. It was just a random term, but it meant something distinctly. So the use of this term reflects the history of the nature of Christ, whether he was just a normal man or whether he was divine. So essentially the Jews had a choice of which one that they would believe depending on their level of belief. But we know Jesus to be both. We know that he was both man and he was both divine. We know that he was God, fully God, and we know that he was fully man. We know that he was fully man so that he's able to relate to every single one of us. I want to quickly read from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, which says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, for Christ to be able to empathize with us, he had to become like us. You know, he had to be born from a parent. So he knows what it's like to be a child. Christ knows what it's like to be adopted because of Joseph. He knows what it's like to be an only child for the years that he's by himself. But he, only, but he also knows what it's like to be a sibling. He knows what it's like to work full-time as a carpenter. But he also knows what it's like to work in full-time ministry. He knows what it's like to be a single man. But he also knows what it's like to be married and all the responsibilities that come to that as being married to the church. He knows what it's like to serve, to be hungry, to cry, to mourn, to be in pain. He knows what it's like to be a law-abiding citizen. But he knows what it's like to be treated like a criminal. He can resonate with the honest, the pure, the genuine, the normal guys who go to work and they listen to their families and they listen to their elders and their leaders. But he can also resonate with the roadmen because they've been stabbed, but Christ has been stabbed. Because they've been rushed, but Christ has been rushed. He knows how to resonate with every single person. And he was made like this and he was put in these type of situations so that he can relate to every single one of us. Because it's easy for us to ignore leaders and to ignore Zwight's counsel when we feel like they can't relate to us. But you can't say the same for Christ. He can relate to us in every single way. Hence why he was the perfect person, the perfect propitiation, in other words, the perfect replacement for us in order to take upon all the sins that we have incurred now, in the past, and in the future. He was the perfect sacrifice. But as a mere man, he couldn't do it all, which is why he was also divine. Jesus removed the barrier between God and man, the divine and the humane. He is the mediator between us and God, and he brings us together. At Christ's death, when the veil was ripped from the curtains, removing the barrier between man and God, it is Christ that acts as a bridge to bring us together. And Jesus Christ came at a time when intimacy with God was lost. There was 400 years of silence where they didn't hear from God, where there weren't prophets speaking about God. All they had were the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and all these other sides and people that were there and all these other political groups. So they were aware of God. They knew about God. They saw him as their God 
as their provider per se, but that relationship that once was, was no longer there. And this is the time when Jesus came at this desolate time where they didn't realize that you can actually have a real relationship with God. This is when Jesus came. So in other words, what I'm saying is that the answer was right in front of them. When he asked, who is the son of man? Essentially, he was telling them who he is. He was giving them the answer. And I find sometimes that God speaks to us very plainly. He speaks to us very clearly, very simply, but we like to make everything deep. We like things to be really, really deep so that we can believe that it is God speaking. We complicate things when God is so simple. It reminds me of the story of Elijah, you know, the, the wind came, but God was not in the wind. The earthquake came, but God was not in the earthquake. The fire came, but God was not in the fire. And sometimes we want all this theatrical, um, dramatic things to happen for us to think, yes, it's God. But that small, still voice, that was God. Some of us scream out, God, speak to me. God, I want to hear your voice. If you want to hear, your vo- if you want to hear God's voice, read your Bible. And if you want to hear a voice, read it out loud. It's as simple as that, but we want to make it all complicated unnecessarily. You see, many Jews saw Jesus as a prophet. If anything, they saw him as a great prophet. Look at who they've compared him to. Elijah, John the Baptist, Jeremiah. These were big boys in the game. So they didn't just see Jesus as a a minor prophet, but they saw him as a major prophet, a great man. But Jesus is more than a prophet. Jesus was more than a prophet. You know, there were over, there are over, sorry, 300 Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. If he had just missed one, if he had failed to fulfill just one, then he couldn't have been the Messiah. And this is why Jesus was so particular and specific about the things that he did. There's a reason why he said, no, it's not the right time. There's a reason why he said, no, I'm going to get on a donkey and not on a horse or a camel. There's a reason why he did certain things at a specific time in order for all the prophecies about him to be fulfilled. There's a reason for it. There are those who argue that maybe it would have been possible for him to kind of fake or manipulate some of the situations. You know, the prophecy talks about, you know, the, the Messiah coming on on a steed, on a donkey. So maybe he intentionally got that donkey, but he would not have been able to prepare what all the other people would have done as a response to him. People say that it was strategic for him to be born in Bethlehem, where he was born and then move over to Nazareth. But there was a census that was taken by King Herod and by the leaders. So no, there's certain things that you can't just construct. It was Christ being Christ. I want to read a quote from a book that says, the probability of just eight prophecies being fulfilled is one chance in 100 million billion. So for eight, remember I said there's over 300. So for eight of them to be fulfilled perfectly, there's one chance in 100 million billion. 100 million billion. In other words, the only person that could have been able to fulfill 
every single Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah is the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And he reveals this to disciples later on. He said to them, let me just quickly read from Luke 24. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus knew his word. Jesus knew the Old Testament. He knew it off my head. Therefore, he knew that every single thing that has been said about me, I have to fulfill every single one of them to prove and to show that I am the Messiah. You see, the people identified Jesus by what they knew and what made sense to them. And I believe that sometimes we do this. You see, we, we, we recognize and we identify God through our own experiences and through the things that we have seen. And they're not always positive. You know, my, my father was abusive, therefore God must be abusive. You know, when, when I sin and things are going bad in my life, this must be God punishing me because when I did bad at home, my father would punish me. You know, my, my leader or, or my pastor was manipulative. So therefore, God must be manipulative. The church is always asking for my money and always asking me to give. So therefore, God just wants to take all my money and he doesn't want me to have any wealth. He must be anti or anti-wealth, anti-profit. Christians are hypocrites. They're dishonest. Therefore, that must be a reflection of God as well. Or vice versa. Listen, my dad loves me. My mom loves me. They say I'm perfect just the way I am, flaws and all. Therefore, if I become a Christian, why do I need to change? Because God loves me just the way I am, flaws and all. I am perfect. He wouldn't want me to change. You see, we, we can't look at God through our own experiences or our own mindset. Neither can we look at God through the eyes of other people. Bear in mind, the question was, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And the disciples gave the response of the people that wasn't fully correct. And what we can't do is take what other people tell us about God and use that to form our own opinion about God as though it's factual. People say God is like this, therefore I believe this way is like. People say Jesus is like this, therefore I believe that as well. We can't do that. And we can't make assumptions because what we, then, what we end up doing then is making a God out of our own ideology. We start creating our own God and casting opinions upon this God and in worshipping that God. And next thing you know, you're in pagan worship without even realising. So to put Jesus first, we first need to know him and not just about him. You really need to know him. It reminds me of the, of the story of the, of the sons of Sceva, if anyone's read in the book of Acts, where there's, 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 these, there's a few sons and there's a demon in their town. And obviously these guys want to go and they want to they deal with the demon. So they've gone to the demon now. They've gone to the spirits and they've said, 
you know, I bind you and I cast you in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches about. So the demons went to them and said, Jesus we know, Paul we know, but you we don't know. And the scripture says that the demons mashed them up, rushed them, stripped them, the man them were running off. And what's funny about that is they said, <laughs> they said, we cast you out, we bind you in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches about. In other words, they didn't know Jesus for themselves. They didn't understand Jesus for themselves. They only knew Jesus through someone else. But they were trying to gain the privileges and the access and the power given by Christ for what they need to do. And sometimes we do this as well. We don't have direct access to Christ. We don't have a direct relationship, but we try using the privileges of others to get through that. It doesn't make sense. It's kind of like wanting to get the privileges and the blessings that come with being a member of the Cornerstone Church when you're not even a member yourself. You pop in now and again, you don't give any commitment, but yet you think that you can get blessings and then you complain when you don't. We decide to have an event here at Cornerstone Church and we say it's free for members, but if you're not a member, you know, you might have to pay one or two pounds or three pounds or five pounds and then the non-members complain because they don't receive the same blessings as the members, but they feel entitled. You can't do that. Blessings come through commitment, but if you don't show commitment, you can't receive the blessings. You can't expect marital blessings when you're not even married. You can't be asking for things from someone when you haven't shown them the commitment that requires for you to be able to ask those things in the first place. It doesn't make sense. So when the question was now turned around and directed to disciples, who do you say I am? Bear in mind this time he's used the reference I am. I'm going back to the joke I made about John 8 where Jesus stood in front of the Jews and said, before Abraham was, I am, essentially linking his name back to Moses when God said to Moses, when Moses asked, who do I say that you are that's sending me? And then God responds with, I am. So when Jesus said to the Jews in John 8, I am, they recognized what he was saying in regards to Moses. And that's why they declared blasphemy and tried to chase him out. And now we have another situation where Jesus says, who do they say I am? Once again, Jesus giving them the answer within the question. And then bold Peter steps up and he declares him the Christ and the son of the living God. And that living part is going to be important and I'm going to reference why later on. Peter declares him the anointed and chosen by God for kingship. He declares him the future of Israel. He declares him the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. He declares him he who has the same nature as God. And none of these things are small things. None of these things are light things. Given the history, given what the Jews believed about the Messiah, given what they believed about people, given what they believed about Jesus, Peter saying these things are very bold statements. To say that a man is the son of God is a bold statement. 
to say that he is the Messiah, the anointed one, was a bold statement. A bold statement. Essentially, Jesus was the answer to all of their troubles, all of their desires, and their future. He was the answer to everything. And Jesus still is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus is everything. You see, Peter saw Jesus through the lens that God gave him. Jesus says that flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So this was a direct revelation from God above. It wasn't diluted by human experience. He didn't think about the things that he went through and his own ideas and what made sense and what logic dictates and Scientology and philosophy and law and dot, 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 dot. No, this was a direct, direct revelation coming from God down to his spirit and he declared it. You see, how we see Jesus determines our progress and success in the will of God. The way we live and worship is our reflection of our revelation of Christ. How you worship shows what you truly think about him. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except through the Holy Spirit. Which means that the confession of your mouth even reflects the way that the Holy Spirit is working inside of you. So all you do, all you believe, all you know is manifested through how you behave, how you speak, how you think, how you respond. You see, the realization of Jesus' lordship, the realization that he is the Messiah, the realization that he is the son of the living God comes with a change in us and a risk in offending people. You see, Jesus is greater than our parents. He's greater than our employer. He's greater than our leaders. He's greater than the government. He's greater than the laws. He's greater than the queen. He's greater than ourselves. So when you realize these things, you change how you respond to certain things. So when you're at home and your auntie calls and your mom says, tell her I'm not home. Mom, I can't, I can't do that because then, then I'd be lying. I, mom, I, I can't do that. Or when you're with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and they're encouraging you to take it that step further, I can't do that. That's, that's sexual morality. I, I can't do that. When you're at work and your colleagues asking, you know, how was your weekend? And they're telling you they went drinking, they went partying, they did this, they did that. And you told them, you know, you went to church, you're in the house of God, and you're talking about it. And they're trying to tell you, you know, that religious talk, just take it down. I, I, I can't do that. I, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. All I can do is speak my truth. That's what I can do. Because anything or anyone you listen to, follow, respect, honor, love, subject to, more than Jesus becomes your God. And this is idolatry. It's idolatry. You see, we recognize idolatry as, as worshiping pagan gods and, and, and false images and all these things, but really all it is is replacing God as priority over your life. It's giving value to something or someone over God. The Bible states in the last days, people will become lovers of self, self-gods, 
idolatry, lovers of pleasure, people becoming materialistic and greedy, idolatry. There's even ministry idolatry where you find yourself loving the service of God more than God himself. Loving being seen to serve than actually trying to serve in quiet. Idolatry. You see, if we find God to be so boring or so negligible that we put other things in his place, that we prioritize other things above him, we not only offend him, but we also destroy ourselves. Idolatry. You know, Pastor Conley, there was, there was, there was moments in, in 2021 where my prayer life was pretty much non-existent. Yes, there'd be the little passing comments, the little passing prayers, but I'm talking deep, rich prayer just wasn't happening. Worship, there was no worship. None of that was going on. Because my mind was filled with work. My mind was filled with family. My mind was filled with investments. And I was making excuses. And maybe some of you guys can relate where your mind is filled with the cares of this world. You know, I'd go to church and I'd do the normal church routine and I'd be standing at the front and I'm worshipping and I'm singing, you know, let the king of my heart. But really, truly, he wasn't the king of my heart. He wasn't sitting on the throne. He wasn't sitting on the throne of my heart. What I'd taken his place was my work and the things I needed to do. What took his place were my other commitments and the things I had to serve in. What took his place was my investments and trying to track my finances. The last thing on my mind was my relationship with him. But we thank God for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that convicts you. The Holy Spirit that works in us. The Holy Spirit that is sanctifying us. The Holy Spirit that made me realize, Grady, you are messing up. Grady, what is, what is going on? Grady, where, where are you at? And it's because of that that I said to myself, especially this year, I have to prioritize. I have to put him first. I have to reflect upon him. It's not good enough for me to make excuses such as, you know, God, you gave me this job. You gave me this work. Therefore, I need to commit to it in honor of you. God, you gave me this relationship that I was praying for. Therefore, I need to commit to it in honor of you. You gave me these things I've been praying for. Therefore, I need to sow my time and effort and energy into it in honor of you. But what I'm not doing is honoring you. What I'm doing is replacing you and excusing it. I'm putting it back on you. Like when God asked Adam what happened and he said, it's the woman that you gave me. Putting it back on God. I'm refusing to be accountable for what we've done and what we need to do. Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God. Quick history lesson. So they're in Caesarea Philippi, and I always find this incredible. And for those who don't know, Caesarea Philippi was, was the center of, 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 of Roman life. It's where trade was happening. It's where commerce was happening. People were flowing back and forth. And a specific area that Jesus was at was just near the gates of Hades. And the reason why this is important, because this particular area, when the Babylonians were there, they were committed to bow worship. When the Greeks were there, they were worshipping Pan. When the Romans were there, they were worshipping Caesar. 
So there were pagan gods being worshipped in this one area. This is where sacrifices was happening. This is where sexual morality was happening. This is where sin was rampant. I'm talking Sodom and Gomorrah. It was all happening here. And the things that they were doing was disgusting. And what they believed about the gates of Hades was that there was a particular time where the spirits of the underworld would come out and come onto our pain, onto our earth, and then they transcend and come up and down through the gates of Hades. So this was a rich place in terms of worldly events because of the trades, but also spiritually because of what they believed and the pagan worship that was happening. So how strategic of Jesus Christ, how strategic of our Lord of Saviour, the exact place where there was pagan worship, the exact place where sin was rampant, that was a place where he stood up and he allowed himself to be, to be declared the Messiah, the son of the living God, not the dead God that these people were worshipping. It was in the same place that he declared the church and the mission of the church and what they needed to do in order to defeat the underworld, in order to defeat the gates of Hades. And this one meant about Jesus being particular, specific and strategic in what he was doing and how he operated because he could have had this conversation anywhere but he had it there, Caesarea Philippi. I want to close by reading a quote from Pope John Paul II. And he said, In the incarnation of the Son of God, we see forged the enduring and definitive synthesis which the human mind of itself could not even have imagined. The eternal enters time the whole lies hidden in the part god takes on a human face the truth communicated in christ's revelation is therefore no longer confined to a particular place or culture but is offered to every man and woman who would welcome it as the word which is the absolutely valid source of meaning for human life the bible says that god shows his love for us in that while we are yet sinners christ died for us god demonstrated his love by offering up his only begotten son the son that came directly from him and he did that because he loves us. You see, this new year, as you reflect on new beginnings, on new resolutions, on a new you, will you consider renewing your relationship with Christ? Resolving to seek him first and transforming to be more like him. Jesus Christ came, endured the cross, and reconciled us with God. He now calls on every single one of us to believe in him, to receive him, and to follow him. But the question is, will you? Will you seek him for yourself? Will you put him as your first 
priority. Will you put Jesus first? Will he truly be your Lord and Savior? Will he be the king of your heart? Will you form your own intimate relationship with him rather than casting him to the side or only committing to him once a week on a Sunday? So I want to present an article. If there's anyone here who does not know this Jesus that I've spoken about, if you do not know Jesus for yourself, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you have not given your life to Jesus and you now want to, and you want to declare him your Lord and Savior, the Messiah. Can I just ask you just to raise your hand as a sign of your decision, as a declaration that you now desire for Jesus to come into your life? Because he's calling you and he just wants you to respond. For those watching online, who can't raise their hand, if you just write in the, in the chat, whether you do a hand emoji or you type in me, just put something there so that we're able to identify you as well. Okay. If anyone online has responded, the team um, will be in contact. Just make yourself known and they'll be able to respond to you and let you know what your next steps will be. But right now, I just want to ask if we all just could quickly pray. And I want you to pray for yourself. I want you to pray for your heart. I want you to pray for your relationship with Christ and what you need to do in order to renew and refresh that relationship and seek him for yourself. Jesus' name. So Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you, Lord. Father, we just pray that your word has spoken to us, that you have touched our hearts and you have touched our spirit. For those of us who recognize that our relationship with you does not take priority, that it is not as close and intimate as it should be, that our decisions, our actions, our words are not based upon what you want, but what we want that we have not sacrificed our will for yours Father we just ask that you bring that to the forefront and that you help us Lord you help us to seek you you help us to connect with you help us to draw closer and nearer to you so that you can draw nearer to us help us in our growth in our sanctification and in our transformation as we try to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us for our doubts. Forgive us for our sinful moments. Forgive us for our negligence. Work in us, Lord. Bring all things to our remembrance. Renew our minds. Give us a clean heart and transform us. 
Refill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Let us be full of the Spirit so that we can be true ambassadors of your kingdom, reflecting our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, we thank you. We ask that you continue to speak to us. Let us be sensitive of the Spirit. Let us never quench the Holy Spirit. Let us hear from you. Let us be open to receiving you. And let us respond likewise. We thank you, Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Bless you.